This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Uh, we got a lot of stuff I want to get to today. Uh, starting with this one, did the um, we don't often talk about McMaster football on this program. We're not going to talk about McMaster football as I mean they're doing okay. They're two and one. They look pretty good. They've got Guelph at Guelph for Guelph's homecoming this weekend. It's going to be a test. Here's the thing though: after the game last week and after the game this week, in both cases. The referees called a ton of penalties. I mean, it was it was a flag fest. If you like football, it was hard to like these games because they just got slowed down with penalty after penalty after penalty. Some legit, some I'm not sure. But after the game, both weeks, McMaster coach Greg Knox commented on the fact that he wished the officiating was a little less impactful on the games. He wished the officials would pretty much, you know, back off a little bit and let the guys play. Is it a, is it ever a good move or is it always a good move to publicly let the officials know that you disapprove of some of the things they're doing on the field, on the ice, on the court, whatever? Well, unless things have changed when I used to referee and junior and senior and so on. Uh, it's never a real good idea to tell a referee you think he's an idiot, and there's no other way to flower that up. If you're calling him out, I guess if you're ever going to do it, it's always nice to say, well, he did it when he won. Yeah, but those same referees are going to referee him next week, and See, they and they won't forget. And I always think that if that's the way the game's being officiated, you talk to your players and you adjust. You adjust to, pardon me, the opposition all the time. But is it is it is there an advantage to let the refs know to at least put it in their mind, to put it in their mind? Listen, you're calling way too much stuff here. You're do, you're not calling the game. You have no feel for the game. That's that's really how I interpreted what he was saying. They don't have a feel for the game. He may Greg Knox, who's the coach of McMaster, could come on this program and say that's not what I mean at all. That's how I interpret it. That these refs did not have a great feel for the game, and so if you say that, can that be to your benefit ever? I think it can be during the game, and I'll tell you, I I critique the officiating in our games a lot from the bench, having done their job and and being mindful of it. But I think you do it during the game. I think to do it in the media afterwards is suicide. It doesn't make any sense to me. Let the guy know. And you know what? The guy might have had a bad day. The guy might have been doing a bad job. The guy might have said to himself and to his crew, what are we doing? Yeah, and this was not – And when you say the guy, I mean, yeah, if you're in basketball or – baseball or hockey it could be the guy here it's seven guys eight guys who but, are all whipping flags left right and center but if you're the referee and you're not throwing the flags and you're watching some guy call that you're going holy crap we can't keep doing that and then two plays later somebody else throws one you're going so the head referee's got to manage it in a hockey game you got two linesmen and you know i've had it before with a guy i remember refereeing and, and the guy missed an offside by five feet i just blew the whistle well nobody complained and he said, what are you doing? And the other guy said, it was five feet offside. I mean, we don't know what he was looking at, but we got we, we made the call, and we didn't make a big deal of it. I didn't point or anything else. But when your guys are doing that to you and you're the head referee in a football game and the flags are raining down like empty cups after a bad call, you're going, "Is there, what's everybody doing? And you can't do anything about it, and it gets contagious. <clears throat> and then you set the standard, and everybody's like two guys are saying, well, that's the standard for today, and then they start firing flags around, and it becomes a mess. But I'm telling you, it should be done 
from the sidelines to the head official and to the guys so that they know it. It's I would never do it in the media. Referees are supposed to be officials, not just referees. Officials are supposed to be 100% objective, dispassionate, no grudge carrying, all that stuff. Do you believe that that's the real case or will there be a possibility that they all sit together and go, hmm, we'll show him? I've got even with guys. Like I've I've went for a you know a hot tea after a game sometime on a Friday and a guy tells you a story of where he was and this guy did this and this guy did that and I was in there the next week and I, I made sure he knew who was running the show. They didn't get one break. I didn't hurt the team. I would never let them. They wouldn't lose the game because I was what I was doing. But you can straighten a coach out. There's a there's a union, there's a faculty out there that, uh, you know, no referees are in union. Like I said, I don't know if you can do that anymore, but you got to support your fellow referees, especially if the guy's a nut and he's been on everybody. you got to send a message saying you can't treat us like this collectively. But you've been a ref and you've been a coach, and I know there are times when coaches reach a point where they, because every coach has done it, when you just say, I have nothing to lose here to say something because... I'm not getting any breaks anyway. That, and, and that, again, interpreting again, and I, I run the risk of misquoting, and I'm, not, I'm trying to be very careful here, but I got the sense that he's now sort of saying, and other coaches have done it too, well, what have I got to lose? I'm not getting any calls anyway. Yeah, well, good luck thinking it's going to get any better. You'll find out if he's got something to lose or not. Now, nobody's ever going to know it, but you're never going to get a break. Nobody will do anything against you, but you'll never get a break. But could the... All the games, and I don't know what happens in other sports. I'm assuming it's the same. I know basketball. Um, I know Ron Foxcroft works with the NBA and, and observes and grades officials at games at times, that he will yep. watch over them. They have this in every league, and they have it in football as well. And I'm wondering if a critical comment about that at least causes the grader and then the officials when they send out their stuff to take a harder look at whether or not some of those things were not done right. Do you do you do you sharpen the pencil of the graders then well, by saying here's the problem? This has uh, been of a, a and a friend of mine runs a refereeing at the OHA, Bob Morley, and who did world championships and some NHL games during the strike. And I mean, he's a very quality guy um, and, a, and a good official. But some of the contentions I've had with he and Brad Grant, who's the chairman of the board of the OHA right now, is that if a, if an official screws up. Like, if one of my guys does something stupid, he can get a four-game suspension. I've always said, I, now, I said, you know what? If the, the officials have the ability to handle multiple-game suspensions, and if they're wrong, and we can prove they're wrong via video, then what consequence does the official pay? And why does my get guy get publicly banned, and it's in the media that he got a four-game suspension for doing this, and it was the wrong call? Why don't you stand up and tell me what you're doing to the official? And the answer is that we're not going to publicly ridicule our officials. And that's fair, but you know what? If you're going to publicly ridicule, and I had it last year, a guy that played and won a Memorial Cup and, and played in the East Coast League, he, he wasn't ridiculed, but he got a suspension that was a little questionable. And I had another guy that I thought was wrong. So you bring it up. So they're not going to do that. But I, I can tell you, as a fact, one of the things that I say to officials when I'm when I'm less than happy is, and and I believe it to uh, to the utmost that I always say to them, I'm not judging you on what you call. Everything you call is a penalty. I'm judging you on what you let go. And if my guy gets a penalty for doing something, and the guy from Brantford doesn't get 
a penalty for doing the same thing. That's how I'm judging you. It was a penalty to my guy. The same thing's got to be a penalty to Brantford. And, and if you're up by two or three goals and it's not a penalty, that's how you judge it. And especially in hockey and stick work and late hits in football, if it's a late hit and you're calling it now, you got yeah, to call it zone, all night. Strike zone in baseball, right? fouls but, in basketball. Yeah, for but sure. But we judge you on what for infractions and penalties, not balls and strikes. We judge you on what you let go. The standard is almost every play there's a penalty in every sport. I'm sure you can look at the, the game films of every game. There's probably a questionable holding call on every play from scrimmage in football. Now it's the ones they call, and that's where you get in trouble. Well, you called, just called it on me, and the same thing happened to our guy, and there was no call. And, and yeah, that's you're, a boatload of crap. And you've you're got correct. to smarten up. In football, this is, the, this is the difficult part about football, whether it's the CFL, whether it's the NFL, whether it's NCAA, whether it's Canadian University. There is literally a penalty possible to be called on every single play. Every single play, there is a hold, there is a clip, there is a hit from behind, there is an unnecessary rough. There's, you could find a penalty on yep. every single play. There's t- in Canadian football, there are 24 guys running around, smashing into each other and trying to impede the other's progress. You could find one on every single play. Trying to get an advantage on the other guy. Of course. An advantage every time. And so it becomes, and to Greg Knox's point, one of the words he used was, these are subjective calls. They are always, they're not subjective in football. The calls are not subjective in terms of, there is a clearly defined description of what a penalty, what the penalty is. Holding is this, and it is spelled out what holding is. But when you take the words and translate them into real life and from the theory into the practical, there are shades of gray. And so there is subjectivity involved in whether that thing that he did uh, I'm not sure that was a hold, but then a tiny bit more is a hold. It becomes very difficult. It's a standard, right? You got to set the standard at the start of the game. If you're, if you know this officiating crew officiates like this, when I said earlier, coaches adjust to the other team. You also have to be smart enough to adjust to the officiating. And if you know these guys are prone to call games a certain way then you better adjust. And if you know who's coming in, you're going to say, these guys like holding penalties on the line. Guys, you got to keep it clean today. Back to the coaching. You have to make your own adjustments, especially if you know how the if you know how the officials are likely that crew is going to call your game, then don't look astonished when they call the game like you know they're going to call the game. Make an adjustment, which shouldn't have to, but it's the way it is. Well, which They you do know, it, in um, Scott, in umpires. They do. For Strike sure zones, the pitcher knows this is how Radley calls it. Although it's less That's so. how Robertson does it. it and, and the thing is, in sports, it's become less so. With baseball umpires now, when you watch TV and they have that electronic strike zone, umpires have become far less inclined Liberal. to take liberties and have a high zone or a low zone. They have a zone, which they are forced to be in, and they will be out of a job if but you know the pitchers and catchers. You you know you do. Russell and, knows. And hockey, when there was one referee once upon a time, you could have a sense of what was going and what wasn't going. Now there's two, it's harder to do that. And football with eight guys who can all throw a flag, or seven guys, depending on what level you're at. I mean, it is you, and they're not always the same crew. It does become... It does become, it just surprises me, frankly, as we go to break, it surprises me we don't hear more people saying something. 
when in, back in the 70s and early 80s when I watched officiating and paid more attention to it, you would see guys like Bob Myers, Andy Van Heldeman, and you would hear the commentators saying, these guys have got the big games because everybody knows they've got a good feel for the game. A feel. Right? A feel, right. They've got a good feel for the game, and it's going to be done properly, and everybody knows what to expect. Yeah, no, and that's what it is. It's a feel for the game, and I, I as I say, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the officials are always wrong. Not, I'm, not, I'm not taking the position, I'm not taking the anti-official stance here. What I'm saying is I'm surprised there's not more of this because, especially in football, when you have seven or eight officials, that's seven or eight mm-hmm. points of view and slightly, slightly different interpretations. That makes it for, it's very difficult to have an across-the-board level. You would love to have perfection. Football, to me, football and basketball right now are the two sports that are the hardest to officiate. Because in football, you have 12, they say 24 people. Guys come in front of your line of sight. There are, you know, you can be bumped. There's all kinds of things. In basketball, you've got 10 huge men crammed into a tiny space. It's really hard to call these games. And if you can do them well, you're still not going to be perfect. That's the thing. You're, you're, if you're doing it really well, if you're the best in the world, you're still going to make mistakes because... It's impossible to see. And, and, you know, some of the bang, bang things, some of the things with the speed they're going now, it's impossible. We can't, they can't get it right when they take it to the instant replay booth in Toronto in the CFL. How are the guys on the field supposed to get it right 100% of the time? But I can understand how coaches go crazy. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at the officials on this one. I think the official, I, I don't think the officials... Well, we're going to talk about more about officials in a different way. The best in NCAA basketball official in the world never made a mistake. I've talked to Foxcroft about it. He was the absolute <laughs> best. You think Ron has never would never say he's made a mistake? I don't think he did. Well, I think Ron might say he's made one. Ron thought he made a mistake once, but he was incorrect. <laughs> uh, we're going to stick with officiating in a different way, though, when we come back. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Don, we were talking about officiating before we went to the break, and we're going to stick with that because on the weekend, there was a, uh, a huge fight. Now, as I said in the intro there, this was not McGregor and Mayweather, which was a huge fight, but it was mostly about hype rather than about actual fighting. These are the two, two of the best fighters they're middleweights in the world, both champions, and they finally met up. One, his name is Saul <laughs> Alvarez. One is Gennady Golo- uh, Golovkin. That's what I love about boxing, eh? They're both champions. They're so, they're so, they're so well unknown. Yeah. There's, uh, there, there's 34 middleweight champions. Well, and th- you know what? We're not going to get onto this too much, but this <clears throat> is why, this is one of the reasons That's right. why the UFC has usurped boxing as the pugilist yeah. sport. There is one UFC. Yeah, and there's a couple little dinky ones in probably all over. But, but they all just want to get, they're all farm teams. They all want to get to, all the guys in there want to get right. to the UFC. The UFC champion is the champion. There's no question about it. No one's saying, oh, no, the guy who's in this or this or this is. The UFC champion is a champion. In boxing, there's the WBC, the WBA, the ABA, the IBA, the WBQ, the PDQ, the LRT. There's, I mean, there's whatever. <laughs> so who knows who the champions are? Anyway, these are two of the best fighters in the world. They met up on the weekend. One judge at the end of it, and it was apparently, I did not buy this. 
decided I wasn't going to pay for this at home. But from every report, literally every person who's written about this or talked about this says it was a terrific fight. Very, very close. One judge scored at 115-113. And this is the 10-point system. So every round, someone must get 10 points and the other guy gets 9 points. Unless it's such an overwhelming round that it could be 10-8. That's why the numbers add up to these kind of things. So 115-113, meaning the one guy was judged to have won two more rounds than the other. The second judge judged at 114-114, said it was a draw. Third one, and by the way, almost everybody watching it said those were close to correct. The guy who won on that first judge's card was the guy who in all likelihood really won the fight, but he won two more rounds. The third judge gave it to the guy that everybody said lost by a score of 118 to 110. So basically, that guy almost swept. The guy who everyone in the world who watched this says lost the fight, this judge said, no, no, he dominated. He was clearly the far better fighter from beginning to end. Boom, wiped him out. And we go back to officiating, and this is a different kind of thing because we're not talking about the football, basketball, whatever. And you and I may have, we may have talked about this after the Mayweather-McGregor fight because there was some wonkiness going on with one of the judges' cards then. And we've seen this with other fights recently. We've seen wonkiness. What do you do about judged sports, period? What do you, because it seems clear now that if there is a big fight, there's going to be something screwy with it. That, I mean, that's, the, that's what people are beginning to take the position on. If there's a big fight, if there's a big figure skating event, Heaven knows we've seen that Salt Lake City. Remember Salt Lake City with the Canadians getting initially screwed out of their medal? If there's a big event and it's judged, someone is getting hosed. What do you do about it? In this case, they may want to start considering drug testing the officials and not just <laughs> not the athletes. Just, Have true. them do a breathalyzer afterwards. It's I mean, absolutely some, true. Unless you walked out with a very large man in a trench coat with a big brown paper bag he was walking out with her. That might be, in the old days, chomping on a cigar. That's generally how fights were determined, the success of. It's who got to what judge quickest and who was the scariest to intimidate them into saying, my guy's going to win. But I think that's probably changed a little bit in the modern era, but you start looking at the Olympic, you know, you talk about, refereeing and so on in the Olympics, whether it's boxing or gymnastics. Yeah, judging or refereeing? Both. Okay. Judging, refereeing, anything. <clears throat> and you wonder, because there's always talk about it around these big events like this boxing match that you talked about. And then uh, who, was the, who was the dude that got booted out of the Olympics because he was getting pieced off? So if you wanted the Olympics, the packages you gave to the people that were inspecting mm. the sites... Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. astronomical. So I don't know how anybody Juan can Antonio put their, Samaranch? Yeah. I don't know how anybody can put their surprise face on when it starts at the top and they're getting pieced off by the millions and then throw their hands up and say, I can't believe you can buy these judges off. Well, so, you yeah. kidding me? It starts at the top So the if it's Olympics. in the administrator. Well, you go back to 1988 and one of the greatest. It's well, the same thing. It's a competition to who's going to host. Yeah. Still you, a competition. You, you can go through different Olympics. There was in 1972 when the Russians, was it 72 when the Russians beat the Americans in basketball where they kept giving more time on the clock until the Russians finally won. 
Uh, the Americans, by the way, who took silver in that still have refused to accept their medals. It's an interesting story. Uh, 1988 in Seoul, Roy Jones Jr., who's still considered one of the greatest boxers of all time and certainly yes. one of the greatest amateur boxers, absolutely tore apart his Korean opponent in the final and lost on the judges' cards. There was not, there was, there was literally, when you watch that, if you want to go, go on YouTube, I'm sure you can still watch it. I don't know if that, if his opponent landed a punch and at the end he somehow lost. And now this, and also I, I, looking at this and just remembering that uh, last year, Manny Pacquiao, recently Manny Pacquiao had a fight in the Philippines and lost. And it was a wildly controversial judging situation as well. And the interesting part about this one, see my initial reaction while I, we talked about this on the show last week, conspiracy theories about different kinds of conspiracy. I'm not a conspiracy theorist as a rule, but judging in these kind of events, there's enough background of corruption that I'm not saying every judge who does something bad is corrupt, but we've seen it with the figure skating. We've seen it with other things that that's your initial reaction, which is a dangerous place to go if you love sports. It, I mean, it's dangerous to believe that sports are rigged. That's my point. Because it ruins sports completely. It really does. If you believe, Don, going into an event, that this is pre-decided, why, why would you ever watch it? So the idea that there could it's like, be... It's like a car wreck. Yeah, but if... You just want to say how bad somebody's going to get screwed. I suppose. I suppose if you're really wanting to antagonize yourself, if you haven't had enough frustration and anger in your life that day... Go watch something really obvious and have a different result and just well, so you can get enraged. If you think things are fixed, if North Korea right now had a pretty decent boxer and the boxing match was in North Korea and it <laughs> fought the best guy <laughs> yeah. in the world, I know where my money's going. Oh, yeah. No, no. Like I, if the North Korean guy can actually stay up after the fight, he wins it. That's right. And the points would be he repeatedly, he wins for repeatedly slamming his face into the other man's fists. But there he would the be people damage. saying, I can't believe he won. Well, I can tell you before the fight starts who's going to win. The um, This one, no. They got, I mean, they got to start testing these people for drinking and Well, the funny part drugs. about this is, is that it's the immediately after this fight, the judge came under incredible fire from analysts, from social media, everywhere else. And she reached out to some media person. And the interesting part about this story is her defense basically is, I'm not corrupt, I'm incompetent. Because <laughs> there's really only two options in this one. Well, but that, either, end, that ends the argument. You either took payola to, and you took a, you know, you were being paid off to, to rig this thing, or you are completely out of your league and don't have a clue what you're doing. And, and her argument seemed to be, I, I didn't do anything illegal. I just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but you know what? If you're getting pieced off, it's a great defense. Yeah. That I, wait, it wasn't my, now I don't, I have no reason to believe that she was bought. She, she apparently is very distraught about this and is basically just saying, I just, I didn't see it like that. And oops, if everyone else did, oops. My bad. I was mad he was hitting him in the head so many times. I felt bad for the other guy, so I let him win. I just don't know what you do about these particular sports. I, I really don't know what you do about these particular sports. And people will say, well, lots of sports are judged. They'll say lots of different sports have judges because wrestling has points awarded to it. Although, again, the points are a little more yeah. tangible. Um, there are sports where you have judges I don't know why certain ones, I guess, is my point. Okay, so you've, you've talked about boxing. Boxing. Two or three 
Mayweather. Many, many, many fights. We could go over many fights in boxing with weird stuff. But when you start looking at talking about the officiating and boxing and so on at this level and the key story is the officiating, then don't be surprised when you wonder why the decline of boxing and its popularity is going the way it's going because you can't continually in a sport in your premier bouts having the officiating deciding or the, the, the in this case the officiating um, start to determine the outcome because then nobody nobody's interested the w- because they don't know if the best fighter is going to win the fight professional wrestling WWE which has made billions of dollars over the years. I mean, look, you can love professional wrestling. You can think it's the stupidest thing on the planet. You cannot argue that for a time, specifically from about the early 80s through to the mid or late 90s. Hulk Hogan used to wrestle it was, at the it Brantford was Civic Center and win three nights because they filmed three shows. It was It great. was huge. What they would do, they would never have in all their big events the bad guy win all the time. Because it can happen once in a while that you leave there feeling frustrated by what you saw. But if every time you go to a card or turn on the TV, the guy who's the bad guy wins, that after a while you're going to go, why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. They understand. That's sport entertainment. That's fixed endings. In this, if you go to buy a boxing match, which is 100 bucks on pay-per-view, or you go to it, and time after time when the thing ends, you walk out of there just frustrated and angry. It's to your point. You're going to not continue watching because you say, why am I doing this to myself? But if you're watching a boxing match and you don't have a favorite going in, like, you know, you, you enjoy boxing. But you so. get one. So uh, maybe. maybe. Um, but if you enjoy watching it and you were going to buy it and you didn't care who won and it was a great match and it was a great bout and, I mean, the boxing was outstanding, you're going to say, well, he can win. I know better. And it was a great fight. You, you know, you can get upset if you have a pick and you can get frustrated and upset because you think it's fixed or the officials are incompetent. It doesn't take away the fact that it was a great boxing match. So if you enjoy boxing, you'll self-serve yourself. I suppose. I, I, I just look at this and I go, There's, there has to be a way to clean this up. But it hurts the game, right, it does. Scott? That's what I'm saying. If and the boxing is probably dropping. First of all, there's no great big guys. There's no heavyweight. There's a division. But Well, there's no Mike Tyson. There's no Muhammad no. Ali. There's nobody that people really are dying to see because they care or at least they're intrigued by that person. Conor McGregor is probably the guy... And he's not even a boxer. Yeah. That's a sad state of the boxing world, right? But we come back to the very start of where this was. Why is it there? It is there largely, not entirely, but largely by self-inflicted wounds. Too many organizations, too many champions, and too many nights like this where people walk away going, why did I just spend my money on this? When it looks shambolic. How's that word for today? Shambolic. Spell it. I will in the commercial. (laughs) S-H-A-M-B-O-L-I-C, I I believe. Someone can look that up. Maybe that'll be our quiz question tomorrow. No, it won't be. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We're week two now, finishing of the NFL season. Colin Kaepernick is still topic number one in most people's discussion ledgers these days. I got two questions about Colin Kaepernick for you. 
And some people will think that what Colin Kaepernick is doing is fantastic. Some people will think he's an idiot. TV ratings would suggest that enough people think he's an idiot because the ratings are going down again for the NFL, and a lot of them, are, a lot of people are citing this. But here's my question: Colin Kaepernick was held up when he decided to kneel, not stand for the national anthem. Colin Kaepernick was held up as a hero because he took a stand and risked everything to do what he did. When he then loses everything because nobody wants to sign him, how is it that these people, that that the same people who were holding him up as a hero because he risked everything are now saying he should, they should have to sign him? Because what I'm saying is if they should have had to sign him, there was no risk to what he was doing and no bravery. He's not, he's not risking anything then. I'm just I'm trying to find the the thought process here. If if he is truly a hero, Muhammad Ali went to jail for three years, three four years, not, not to jail part. Well, to jail and and lost his heavyweight uh, title because he wouldn't he wouldn't go to war, wouldn't fight for. He became a that, Muslim. That that is losing something, and he knew what he could lose, and he did lose it. And we acknowledge and we revere him. Many people do for risking it, losing it, sacrificing here. We're saying he risked it, but we don't want him to actually have to pay for what he was risking doing. That's right. Just that give, doesn't seem to make any sense. Give him a fine or... No, but they're saying... And, and now what are the they doing with the other ones that won't? Him. What well, are they doing with the other guys that won't now? They're not getting rid of all of them because they can't. But if the owners are under some sort of social obligation to give this guy a job, what was the risk that Colin Kaepernick was taking back when he took a knee? He wasn't taking any risk then. He wasn't no. doing anything except taking a knee. So if you want to hold up Colin Kaepernick as a hero and as a legend and as a brave fighter for his cause, you must accept then that the owners who have decided to not sign him are within their rights to not sign him. And this is what Colin Kaepernick knew might be happening. And for that, you can honor him. But to argue that he must be given a job defeats the purpose of the whole thing. That's right. If you know what you're risking and it may cost you your job, don't be surprised you don't have a job because you did it. Exactly. Now, the other one, and we only got a minute or so now, left there's, And, and there's, there's, there's arguments on both sides, and lots of guys will take both sides of the argument. I, I, I Somebody's going to sign them because the NFL owners want to win, and when they're one in six and they haven't got a quarterback, somebody's going to sign them. It's going to happen. I have no objection to anyone supporting Colin Kaepernick and saying he does the right thing. If you have that opinion... Have that opinion. That's totally fine by me. I don't hate you because you believe in Colin Kaepernick. I think everyone's entitled and can have a solid opinion either way. The other question, though, and we'll get maybe get to Colin Kaepernick if he's still a topic of discussion next week, but here's my other question. We only have a minute. In the NFL, if you get a touchdown and you dance in the end zone, you get a fine. You get a penalty flag. A f- not a fine. You get a penalty flag. If you take a knee, they say, we can't do anything about that because that's your First Amendment right to free expression. So take a knee during the anthem, that's okay. Why is dancing in the end zone not an expression of your First Amendment right that you should be allowed to do? That's called hypocrisy. Just seems odd to me. Isn't it? It seems odd to me. that if I, I, And again, I'm not arguing that Colin Kaepernick should not be allowed to do that. If that is your First Amendment right, that seems to me okay. That's that's how he chose to use it. But if I go into the end zone and I start dancing around and do the worm through the end zone and whatever else, I would think that's my First Amendment right to express myself. Just and to, and it's show business. It is, yeah. 
but they're, they're in the show business 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 of show business or some kind of business. the business of show you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 chml this story came across uh what time today did this story move uh i can't even uh this afternoon there was a story that moved out of mcmaster university that said that on January 1st, coming up, so in a few months, McMaster University, the entire campus from edge to edge to edge to edge, border to border to border to border, will be entirely smoke-free. There will be no more smoking. There will be no more of any of the tobacco or other vaping, no. Pot, no. Cigarettes, no. Cigars, no. Pipes, no. There's got to be a few professors that are going to be seriously bummed out that they can't smoke a pipe. Professors still smoke pipes, right? I hope they do because the pipe, especially the Sherlock Holmes pipe, that screams professor. You walk into a professor's office and he's got one of those dangling Sherlock Holmes pipes. And as he's talking to you, he's you know puffing on that. In my mind, his IQ shoots up by about 60 points just by having that pipe. If he's also got a monocle at the same time, man, the guy's a genius. But anyway, all that stuff, banned. Nobody on McMaster campus will be allowed to have any form of tobacco slash puffing kind of thing. As I said, not even vaping. And I didn't think that vaping was, I thought vaping was like the alternative now that people accepted because it wasn't really secondhand smoke. But no, vaping apparently is going to be out as well. On its face... This seems to make some sense, I think, to a lot of people. No smoking, good. No secondhand smoke, good. This is, yeah, this is all right. No problem. This is, um, this is all right. And I think to a certain degree, there is a, that is a reasonable position to take for sure. I also suspect, although they are not saying it in so many words, I also suspect that the timing of this announcement may have something to do with the incoming marijuana legislation since you would expect, I think, that the demographic likely to be heavier users users of marijuana might be university student ages. And so let's we may not be able to ban pot per se because it would be legal. Once the once it once the law passes, marijuana recreationally is going to be legal. We may not be allowed able to put a ban on pot in place. So let's just ban smoking altogether and this will allow us to cover off the marijuana issue. Again, they're not saying that. I think that probably based on the timing of this may have something to do with it, which may be a clever end run. However, however, here's the problem I have with this ultimately. And I want to come from this, by the way, as I start by letting you know, I am not a smoker. I have never been a smoker. I don't plan to become a smoker. I've probably, I've had a few cigars in my life, but the last one I had, I think was around the time that my second child was born. So we're into almost 20 years ago now coming up on. So it's been a long time since any kind of tobacco product has been near me. So I'm not someone who is coming to this as a, smoking advocate, but we live in a country in which smoking is legal. Tobacco is legal. And it seems to me to be somewhat slash decidedly unfair to those who actually do smoke to say, 
you cannot be using the product that is legal. It is a legal product on our campus. That if you are a smoker, and McMaster has said they will offer a variety of smoking cessation options for their people. But if you're a professor and you're on campus and you have a couple classes in a row, and in order for you to have a smoke, you've got to leave from the middle of campus to go way to the fringe. And they've also, McMaster has said, they're going to make sure that this does not mean that all the smokers are now lining the local streets nearby and puffing away. I'm not exactly sure how you do all these things. This sounds like utopia world. It sounds like McMaster somehow, and I'm not trying to mock them, but it sounds like they've decided we have a brilliant plan that will not only ban smoking, but we'll make everybody on campus who smokes stop smoking magically. Maybe I'm cynical. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm skeptical. That's not going to happen. People are going to smoke somewhere. Oh, and they took it even one further step. Unlike some places that actually consider your private car. If you park your car on a Mac parking lot, your property. So if you sit in the car, you are, yeah, you're on Mac campus, but you're really on or in your property. They are saying, no, a car on McMaster campus, your car, you can't smoke in your car. Now, I don't think that one's going to hold up, frankly, if someone challenges that with if it goes to court. I don't think anyone, I don't, there are other places where this is where they have similar things, except your car is your property. Nonetheless, McMaster has decided they are going to ban it completely and you will stop because you're not going to just go to the fringe of campus either because we won't do that. We don't want to do that to our neighbors. I suppose they then think, I suppose the concept is these people will hold their cravings until they get home somehow, I guess. They would prefer that they smoke in their house with their young kids or something. I don't know. Anyway, point is, we know smoking is not good for you. I'm not a smoker. Mac wants to completely push this off campus. But tobacco is legal. And as long as tobacco is legal, even from the perspective of someone who is not a smoker, it seems to me there should be some accommodation for people who use this product, even though few of us like it, in some area where they can go and outside where it's going to rise up to the atmosphere and not really affect anybody, you can draw a big paint circle on the ground and make it the circle of smoke. And if you want to avoid smelling any secondhand smoke, you avoid that circle. Heck, you could build a plexiglass little semicircle thing like a bus shelter without a roof. So it just opens up to the sky. So anybody walking by wouldn't even smell it. You could do something. It seems to me that this is really pushing the limits, being unfair to those who do smoke a legal substance, a legal substance. Before I carry on, Robert is waiting patiently. Robert, how are you? Not too bad. Good. What do you think about this? Well, I absolutely agree with you. I think uh, these people who smoke, and I've never smoked. I was an athlete and everything. I never, never partake in it and never did marijuana. Not, not, not my willpower, which is fine. But I have had family members that smoke. And, you know, I would, the only person I ever let smoke in my car was my dad, and that's about it. But I'll defend their right to have the right to smoke. I mean, what are we talking about here? These people are all paying taxes, heavily taxed, contributing to the economy in a big way, but we choose to deny their rights. 
But if you're a Native Indian or you're some other group that smoking is a part of your ritual, you will be allowed to smoke at Mass. That's what they said. Yes, they did say that, that there would be no exceptions for anybody for medicinal marijuana for any reason, but there will be exceptions for Indigenous people who have it, as you say, as part of their culture. That So, in other words, there are exceptions. You're so, just not part of the exception. Right. So they're making, they're choosing the exceptions that they want. Okay? Right. So if, if I happen to be an Indian, okay, uh, I, my rights won't be violated. But if I happen to be a regular person that pay taxes in here all my life, uh, I will be violated. I don't, I don't see how that works. This it, is a government institution, by the way. This is owned by the taxpayers. Isn't that Mass University a public uh, entity? It is. Well, it is owned by, yes, it's a, it is not a private university. Yeah, it's, private, it's not a private, privately owned, eh? No. No, so... So it's a government-owned university. Government-funded, certainly. Heavily government-funded, let's put it that way. Heavily funded government institution that is putting a law in to deprive the rights of individuals to right to smoke on their, in a, a legal uh, you know, product. And I, I, I totally, totally disagree with you. I well, don't care if you have to make a building for them, or I don't care if you have to do whatever. You can't deprive them. It's like someone who's handicapped, and you've got to build a different type of washroom for them. They do that all the time. Robert, i I got to let you go, but I really appreciate the call. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, buddy. Bye. Um, look, I, there can be a different discussion. I don't want to get into the whole Indigenous thing because that's a different, very complicated, obviously, issue. They have said that there will be exceptions made for those who have cultural requirements or cultural significance of smoking certain things. We'll discuss that another day. For right now... For all intents and purposes, it is a full ban. I agree with Robert. I think it is really unfair, quite frankly, to those people who are addicted. Because in our society, we have made it very clear that addiction is an illness. Right? Therefore, we're saying, well, yeah, but you still can't do it. Look, I I, I think this, the idea of diminishing the amount of smoking we should be doing is a terrific idea. The idea of taking it out of the path of other people for secondhand smoke is a terrific idea. The idea of having a designated area or two on campus where someone who is a student or a prof can go outside to have a cigarette if they so choose is not outrageous whatsoever. And if I'm a student, if I happen to be a first-year student who's living on campus in residence where do, I, where do I have to walk to then? Now, McMaster will say, well, look, we're going to help you break your habit. What if I don't want to break my habit? Who are you to tell me that I want to break my habit? I might like smoking. I don't know. I've never smoked. I don't know if that's what people say. But let me get to the other part of this, though, that I find. This is the part that I actually, that's part of it. But there's a second part of this that I find that I stumbled over. This was the... President of the university, Patrick Dean, he did a video explanation. He's a very erudite man. He's a very brilliant man. He explains himself very well. He's exceedingly well-spoken. But this one line jumped out at me. For this to be a great place for everyone to work, eliminating health risks is important, he said. Okay. Okay. I'm kind of with you because... It would be utopia. It would be ideal if we stopped everybody from smoking. 
But if the goal of the university is to eliminate health risks, if that is now one of the driving forces of the university that to be great and to be a great place for people to be, health risks must be eliminated. I would then expect that in addition to banning tobacco and other puffing products, that the fast food outlets that are in the student center and available on campus would be told to leave as well and replaced with whole foods and grain dispensaries for those so we can have only really healthy foods. How can you argue that we are all about eliminating health risks and allowing fast food to be served and available in cafeterias, in wherever else? How can we have French fries? How can we have pizza? How can we have these things that nutritionist doctors would say, these aren't good for you? How, if getting rid of tobacco is about reducing health risks on campus, I would expect then that the next announcement that will be coming out will be that the campus pubs will be closing and alcohol will be banned on campus from residents and other campus parties. Because we know, we know that one of the ongoing issues that university students are grappling with, we hear this from the experts all the time, is binge drinking. Therefore, if, if this is about preserving students and faculty from health risks, there will follow, there will be a ban on alcohol on campus to follow. That only makes sense. As would be, I expect, a ban on junk food in residence, fast food, chips, all those other things that we talked about. You can't bring all those in. I would expect there will be mandated exercise programs for everybody. Oh, I would certainly expect that an immediate, immediate, would not cost them anything, an immediate ban on students walking while looking at their cell phones, which we know has caused many accidents all over the world. That would be stopped immediately. You you could step into the path of a car. You could walk into a sign. There are ways you could injure yourself. If, If this is going to be a great place by eliminating health risks, should the school be offering a football program? We just read Steve Buse's four-part series in the Spectator Collision Course on the effect that football is now having at times on people's brains. Should football really be part of a university program then if health risks are going to be avoided? Let's, hey, let's go right to the nth degree. Between sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, and, and all the cases we hear at universities all over the place of issues of consent, of rape, of all these kind of things. Should sex on campus then be banned? Crazy? Well, yes, of course it's crazy. No, how could you possibly do this? But we're saying this is all about eliminating health risks. For this to be a great place for everyone to work, eliminating health risks is important. Let's go further. I mean, crazy? Again, maybe. But what about things that affect others? Should should there be peanuts or peanut product? We know in schools you can't have them. What about in universities? We should probably get rid of all peanut products, all milk products for the lactose intolerant, all shellfish for those who have severe allergies to those things. There definitely should be no open flames on candles or incense or whatever 
in a in a dorm room because that could catch fire and we could have a tragedy. Perfume, we got people who are desperately allergic to perfume and cologne and other body scented products. See the problem here? I understand that I'm pushing this to what is probably a ridiculous point. But when you're saying we have to stop one thing because of a health risk, you open a Pandora's box because there's a lot of things that are health risks. Not defending the idea of smoking cigarettes, but I'm saying cigarettes are not the only health thing. These are not, this is not the only thing. If you as a university have decided that you're, it is necessary for you to be the overseer of the health of staff and student, it must, your, your moves must go beyond cigarettes. By definition, you must extend beyond cigarettes. See, I would look at it the other way. I would say people who are go to university are adults. In fact, other than the odd Doogie Hauser, who is a prodigy, everybody who steps onto university campus is or will be within a month or two a un- an adult. Everybody, everyone is going to be 18 years old or older. There might be a few straggling 17-year-olds, but they'll turn 18 very quickly once they get there. If you are an adult, you should be responsible enough to monitor your own decisions, to look after your own health, to make the kind of decisions that will not require the university to be watching over you every step of the way. If someone is smoking outside and you don't want to be around that smoke and they are in a designated smoking area, you can simply walk around them. It's okay. The extra 25 steps that it takes for you to go around them rather than flip through them and go, secondhand smoke. I don't think we're talking about vast fields of smokers. Surely there can be a few places where these people can go and smoke. And again, if you're just tuning in, I'm not a smoker. I'm not defending this from a position of being a smoker. It's just, we're talking about a legal product here. We haven't even got into the idea of university campuses and what they're doing as far as trying to protect students from unworthy thought. Oh, we could be here for hours with the whole thought thing. What opinions you're allowed to hold. What you must be protected from hearing or experiencing. How your your person cannot be offended. You can't hear something that is going to bother you. Your self-esteem could take a crippling blow if you were to hear an opinion that you disagreed strongly with. We're not even going to get into that tonight. We don't have time. I'm just looking at this saying, I would applaud McMaster as a campus, as a university for saying, you know what, we're doing everything realistic to eliminate smoking from our campus, but understanding that we still have some people who choose to use this, what may be a stinky product, but a legal product, we will accommodate them in certain ways. But by and large, this is going to be a 99% free university campus. Even that, I would say, see, there you go. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. These are adults. We don't need our universities to be a nanny. And that's unfortunately what is happening way too often with thought and now with body. 
We are sending our kids somewhere and what they're getting is not the experience of being adults, making adult decisions, decisions, living in an adult world, having to adjust to their newfound independence and studying and doing these things. We are sending them apparently to nursery school where they must be protected at all times from anything that might hurt them. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, educationally, philosophically, politically, we are saying we are going to be that big wall that will protect you from the baddies. And anything bad, don't worry, if you're on our campus, you will be safe. That is not what university is supposed to be for. That is not suggesting we want to have flocks of people walking around campus blowing secondhand smoke into your face for some reason. It's simply to say there are ways to accommodate those who choose to use a legal product and still, still look out for those who don't want to be around it. I, I'm almost standing with McMaster on this one as a non-smoker. I'm almost there. But when they even get to the point of saying you can't sit in your own car with the windows up and have a cigarette, we've moved way past the point of being looking out for the well-being of most. And we've now reached into full-on protective nanny. And that is, I don't think that's where McMaster wants to be. It's a great university. They don't need to be the nanny. They don't. But if they choose to, if they follow through with this and they choose that this must be all about, as President Patrick Dean says, for this to be a great place for everyone to work, eliminating health risks is important. There are an awful lot of other health risks that I would expect are going to be taken taken on in the next little while. All those things I listed. Because why in the world, if we've gotten rid of the scourge of tobacco, why would in the world would we want our students to be subject to the health risks of fast food or alcohol or any of these other things that could possibly damage them? Becomes a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.